Um, hello, everybody. Um, welcome to the January 18th ESE Science Seminar. Um, and the meet, uh, announcements today are extremely brief. Um, next week's seminar will be given by Valère Lambert of UC Santa Cruz on absolute stress levels on fault. Um, and then if you signed up for the Northern California Earthquake Hazards Workshop, just remember that's January 31st, but our registration is already closed. Um, and those are all the announcements for today. So. And we're going to pass it to Jess Murray to introduce uh, Chris. Thanks, Evan. Um, so it's my pleasure to introduce Fred Pollitz today. Um, Fred, I think, as, as Evan has said, needs no introduction, but I'll give him one anyway. Uh, he received his bachelor's and master's from MIT, and um, after that, his PhD in geophysics from Princeton. And following that, he completed postdoctoral work at several institutions, both in the US and in Europe, before coming to the USGS. Um, his work has spanned a huge range of topics, um, just a few of which include induced seismicity, earthquake simulators, um, seismic velocity structure of the crust and upper, upper mantle. He's very well known for his extensive work on viscoelastic modeling of post-seismic processes in lower crust upper mantle rheology and also inter-seismic crustal strain rates and, and accounting for the long-term transient effects um, that are seen in those. Uh, in recent years, he was the project chief for the Crustal Deformation Project here at the Earthquake Science Center, and most recently has led the development of the next generation of crustal deformation models for the 2023 update of the National Seismic Hazard Map. Today, he's going to be talking to us about several recent studies that he's carried out uh, in which he's developed kinematic earthquake slip models um, derived from seismic and geodetic data. And it's my great pleasure to um, have Fred here talking today. Thanks, Jessica. And thanks to the organizers for giving me the opportunity to give the ESE seminar today. And as Jess mentioned, this uh, is based on a few published studies and my collaborators were Chuck Wicks and Jerry Schwartz from the Earthquake Science Center, as well as Bill Hammond, Thorne Lang, and Shenley Liu. So I'm going to be talking about four large Intermountain West earthquakes that occurred in 2020 and 2021. And these are shown here uh, together with a background map of the seismicity published uh, by Steve Wesnowski. So uh, the first earthquake uh, in this whole series uh, happened on March 18, 2020, and that was right at the beginning of the pandemic. And uh, closely on the heels of that were the Stanley, Idaho earthquake and the Monte Cristo Range, Nevada earthquake. And so that and the Antelope Valley earthquake in 2021 kept a number of us from different science centers very busy during the pandemic. And I'll just note for now that three out of these four earthquakes happened on faults uh, that were previously not recognized, and three out of the four uh, did not rupture the surface. Only the Monte Cristo range earthquake ruptured the surface. So all of these earthquakes happened in places where uh, seismic hazards were already estimated to be high. Uh, some of it's working, but not the email uh, right now. 
Oh, sorry. Um, so these earthquakes happen in areas where seismic hazard was already recognized to be high. And a more detailed study of the hazard uh, was given uh, for the Wasatch Front area in a U.S. fact sheet published in 2016. And there it was estimated that uh, the 50-year probability of a magnitude 6.75 or greater was 43%, 6.0 or greater, 57%, and magnitude 5.0 or greater was 93%. So in that sense, the Magna earthquake uh, is considered to be an expected event, but really all of these events are, are no surprise. There's also historical seismicity in the, in the vicinity of all of these events. So I'll, I'll first uh, dive into the Magna Utah earthquake. 2020, this is a picture of downtown Magna before the earthquake. Uh, this earthquake had up to MMI-8 damage, and uh, it did cause damage to uh, a number of structures in Salt Lake City, as well as Magna and surrounding areas. So this is a picture of fallen bricks on Main Street in Magna. And this is structural damage to a building in the western part of Salt Lake City. Uh, Steve Wesnowski published a nice background uh, figure for this earthquake, uh, summarizing some of the recent seismicity, uh, as well as the uh, geodetic deformation and the faulting patterns. So uh, the 2020 Magna earthquake was a normal faulting event in the down dip direction of the Wasatch Fault. The focal mechanism indicates east-west normal faulting on a roughly 30 degree west dipping fault, and the GPS has vectors which are kind of shown in blue in this figure. They go from around zero in stable North America to two to three millimeters per year west, um, west of the Wasatch Front. So that indicates two to three millimeters per year extension across the range front. And I would add that uh, another earthquake, which isn't on this map, was a 1962 event of roughly magnitude 5.2 that happened uh, pretty much in exactly the same place as the Magna earthquake. So this area has had earthquakes before. This is uh, a figure from a recent study by Emily Kleber and others uh, documenting the seismicity associated uh, with the Magna earthquake. So the early aftershocks are shown in this large cluster to the west, uh, which uh, they believe is uh, controlled by a saltair grabbin structure that they document in their paper. And a set of later aftershocks that started six or seven days later was located further east by the West Valley fault zone. And this is just another view of that seismicity from the same study showing the, the Western cl cluster, which is uh, also deeper uh, uh, and more vigorous uh, due to its proximity to the main shock, as well as the Eastern cluster located up there. So some of the questions that we have are what are the causative rupture planes? Is the slip uh, geometry consistent with normal faulting observed geologically for the Wasatch Fault? Is there uh, any geodetically uh, uh, measured after slip and how does it relate to the co-seismic slip at depth? This is uh, a figure provided to me by Bob Smith and it summarizes uh, some of the patterns for previous large normal faulting events. And I want to highlight uh, the plot on the lower right, where uh, it's, it's seen that very shallowly uh, and deep uh, events, uh, very shallowly dipping and uh, 
deep events uh, are quite rare, and the Magna earthquake does fit into that category. So the data set that I'm going to use uh, for this first study are seismic waveforms from the uh, University of Utah seismograph stations using uh, three component waveforms going out to 100 kilometer distance, uh, bandpass filtering pretty much uh, up to a, a corner period of about four seconds using the first 36 seconds of all the records and that's uh, long enough uh, to observe the principal signals. For static offsets, uh, there is GPS. There are three sites with a resolvable signal, and there's also uh, Sentinel-1 ascending and descending interferograms. So this is an example of some of uh, the seismic data in a 100-kilometer radius from the event, and we can see direct P and especially direct S. It's really the direct S uh, that's uh, showing up uh, most of the signal. The event uh, is pretty much uh, too deep to excite substantial surface waves close in. So this is for uh, different components. The geodetic data, we have a time series uh, consisting of daily solutions for three different sites. And uh, the errors are, are pretty high, but we can determine uh, some offsets, uh, at least for two of them that are well out of the noise. And uh, as we'll see later, these offsets are consistent with normal faulting on a roughly north-south trending fault. For interferograms, uh, Chuck Wicks provided uh, two interferograms for the study, and the wrapped interferograms both indicate about 20 millimeters of subs subsidence, and there are no sharp features on these interferograms, which indicate the rupture is uh, pretty well buried. So for the slip inversion, I'm using uh, seismic velocity structure defined by the Wasatch Fault Community Velocity Model. And for this and uh, the other studies that I'm going to go into, using simulated annealing for joint co-seismic slip and after slip. Uh, for this earthquake, uh, I'm fixing uh, the rake at the preferred solution determined by the University of Utah. There are positivity constraints uh, on the rate on uh, slip and after slip, and there's smoothing applied to slip distributions, and there's a specified uh, a priori range of local rupture velocity uh, and uh, maximum rise time. So there are model issues that affect the study of the Magna earthquake as well as uh, uh, the other earthquakes uh, that we're studying. Um, uh, the first is to decide on the fault geometry for co-seismic slip and after slip. I, I find that in, invariably there's a lot of, of guesswork and uh, just kind of manually adjusting what uh, you think is the, the best geometry for uh, uh, fitting all the data that's available. Uh, it sounds kind of old school to say it that way. <laughs> and there are trade-offs with choices of hypocenter, limits on rupture velocity, rise time, etc. The method is, is limited by the choice of a single reference seismic structure. And so there are always path effects that are difficult to get a handle on. And I generally uh, allow adjustments in uh, uh, the average uh, uh, path uh, seismic velocity to get around that. The fault geometry and hypocenter location for the Magna earthquake are provided uh, by a study, uh, uh, Pang and others. In, in 2020, uh, basically indicating a, uh, 
uh, a hypocenter about nine kilometers deep and uh, uh, a dip of 34 degrees and uh, a combination of uh, normal faulting and uh, a right lateral slip component. The uh, observed seismograms can be uh, fit well with a model uh, if they're on hard rock size. So this is an example of seismograms, three component seismograms from a number of hard rock sites. And the model that we come up with is in red and this fits the data uh, as, as well as we can do with any site. However, there are uh, a number of sites that uh, are on areas of uh, low seismic velocity, very low seismic velocity as shown in the figure on the left. And that uh, results in seismograms that cannot be modeled. There are very strong basin effects. And these and a number of other seismograms in these kind of red and orange regions are actually not used in the model. So uh, we've specified the fault geometry. And um, I, I should mention there, there's a west dipping plane, as indicated in this figure on the lower right, and uh, a steeply east dipping plane that intersects it. Uh, at the hypocenter, and we're resolving normal slip on either of these planes. Uh, we're also resolving after slip, which uh, we suppose might uh, occur on the, the same plane which accommodated the co-seismic rupture, or it may uh, occur on the steeply northeast dipping plane. And I'm finding that we can fit the data fairly well with a uh, co-seismic slip distribution uh, as shown in the upper right. So the slip originated at the hypocenter, uh, shown in the yellow star, and propagated uh, uh, to the north and south, but predominantly to the south. This was uh, followed by after slip on the same west of me plane, but up dip of it. So when we plot the first few days of aftershock seismicity, we find that it, uh, it locates well to the east of the co-seismic slip, but it plots pretty much right on top of the afterslip on the west dipping plane. Hang it all, uh, address the question of whether Coulomb stress changes could uh, explain the aftershock seismicity in the immediate vicinity of the co-seismic slip as well as the later aftershock activity that was located further east and occurred several days later. And uh, you can make up your mind looking at this figure, but quite a few uh, of the events in both clusters do lie in areas of positive Coulomb failure stress change. So how well does the model uh, that I just presented fit the data. So it fits the data pretty well at uh, the hard rock sites, as I indicated earlier. How well does it fit the geodetic data? So here I'm plotting the GPS vectors again, together with the model prediction based on just the co-seismic slip or the combination of co-seismic slip and after slip. And if we compare the upper left and the lower left plots, we see that we do need a component of after slip to explain uh, at least uh, this, the two uh, largest GPS vectors. And uh, the other GPS vector off to the east, we're, we're not 
fitting uh, particularly well. It has a very large error, and if we were absolutely determined to fit that vector, we uh, would require more afterslip uh, uh, further updip. Uh, the same model does explain the interferograms pretty well uh, with a small residual. There was an independent study by Mesa-Murray and others, which used uh, wave field backpropagation and when they use all of the available stations, that in includes the hard rock sites and other sites, then uh, they find a, un a unilateral rupture up dip in towards the southeast. However, when they uh, use a smaller number of stations, which are basically just hard rock sites, they find a rupture um, that, that they describe as up dip into the south. And that resembles uh, a little bit more my model, which qualitatively, um, resembles more unilateral rupture to the south, uh, propagating more strongly to the south to the, and to the north at any rate. Uh, their co-seismic rupture spills over to the east uh, in the aftershock zone more than my model, but the southward rupture component is a common feature of the two models. So to conclude for the magna, Earthquake, the model's most consistent with the seismic waveform and uh, the static offset data involved co-seismic slip on a shallowly west-dipping fault at 9 to 11 kilometers depth, plus up to 10 centimeters of afterslip on the same west-dipping fault updip uh, of the locus of co-seismic slip. And the event locates approximately on the down-dip extension of the Wasatch Fault. And the shallow afterslip reaching about five kilometer depth uh, was likely triggered by the co-seismic slip on the deeper section of the Wasatch Fault. And I think these results are important just because we have this picture of co-seismic slip happening deeper and afterslip creeping up to shallower levels. And the fact that the Salt Lake City segment uh, is, uh, is, is very late, has not had uh, a rupture uh, in a very long time. So next, I'm going to change gears and uh, move on to the March 31, 2020 Stanley Idaho earthquake. This happened just 13 days after the Magna earthquake. And this is a picture of the Sawtooth Mountains in Idaho. Steve Wesnowski has another nice background figure for this event. And he, he notes that the um, this uh, event occurred in the western part of the Centennial Tectonic Belt. And in general, uh, activity in the Centennial Tectonic Belt is concentrated between the Madison Range in the east and the Sawtooth Range in the west. There, the uh, 1959 Hepkin Lake earthquake and the 1983 Boer Peak earthquake happened when the Centennial Tectonic Belt uh, moving to uh, the Sawtooth Fault, a slip rate of 0.9 millimeters per year is estimated. And uh, activity on the Sawtooth Fault uh, is considered to have migrated to the north during the Pleistocene. All the action during this earthquake uh, was off the, the northern part of this fault. Net extension perpendicular to the normal faults from GPS is about one millimeter per year, and the area undergoes right lateral shear between 0.3 and 1.5 millimeters per year. And that would be right lateral shear across this uh, northeast trending centennial tectonic belt, and uh, Wisnowski 
uh, states that this is consistent with the, the left lateral uh, or the left uh, stepping and an echelon pattern uh, that we see in a number of these fault systems. So this is uh, a rock slide uh, in the Snake River Canyon uh, due to this event. It's, it's not easy to find a, a lot of damage because the area is remote and it was pretty deeply buried. Uh, this is an example of a sandy beach, which used to be here and is labeled uh, former beach due to liquefaction features. And this uh, is an example of a tree which fell over again due to liquefaction. So um, I'm showing here again the centennial um, tectonic belt and uh, Stanley earthquake uh, occurred off uh, in the west western part of that. So the questions are, what are the causative rupture planes? Was there surface rupture? Is the slip geometry consistent with normal faulting observed geologically for the sawtooth fault? And how does the trans-chalice fault system influence earthquake slip? So it has been noted before that the trans-chalice fault system uh, tends to terminate all these north-northwest uh, trending, uh, 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 more recently active, fault systems. The trans-chalice tra tra fault system uh, dates back to the Eocene. It, uh, it accommodated normal faulting at that time, so it's an ancient fault system. Uh, uh, these figures uh, by Liberty and others 2020 uh, indicate that the, the seismotectonics are dominated by a combination of normal faulting and left lateral slip. And uh, they also note, looking at the aftershock seismicity, that the likely causative fault plane was a steeply west-dipping structure. And they also considered an interferogram, which indicates subsidence uh, to the west and uplift to the east, which is consistent with a combination of normal slip and left lateral strike slip. So to further investigate this earthquake, I'm using a data set of seismic waveforms from uh, several networks uh, going out to 300 kilometers uh, away uh, for this event and using somewhat lower frequencies, so uh, down to a, a corner period of about eight seconds, using 120 seconds of all the records. And for static offsets, we have horizontal offsets from regional uh, continuous GPS sites as well as uh, an ascending and descending Sentinel-1 image. Uh, so uh, the seismic data uh, that I mentioned is within a 300 kilometer radius is, is shown here. There are 18 uh, regional stations. And I mentioned these other things already. So the coverage is, is not great in the immediate vicinity of the event, which is why we need to go to uh, longer period and extend the range further out uh, compared with the magnet earthquake. For GPS data, this was provided by the Nevada Geodetic Laboratory. And this pattern is roughly consistent with a combination of uh, normal faulting and a left lateral strike slip faulting. And when you just look at this pattern, uh, it's, it's more consistent with uh, strike-slip faulting than, uh, than normal faulting, even though both are, are taking place during this event. And we can fit this data with a, a pretty healthy combination of both. 
this is just showing that the, the GPS offsets are based on data collected several days before and after the event, and we can see pronounced steps for some of these stations, some of these larger offsets uh, close in. We see the steps uh, clearly in the data. So we've got uh, Sentinel-1 ascending and descending interferograms, and it, it boils down to about 50 millimeters of subsidence to the west and an equal amount uh, of uplift to the east, but it, it is shaped by a combination of normal faulting and left lateral slip, and the same goes for the descending interferometer. To get a handle on the, the fault geometry, we can make use of either the NEIC preferred moment tensor or the uh, CGMT solution, which are, are fairly close to each other and uh, define a nearly north-south trending fault plane, which I have dipping steeply to the west based on the uh, aftershock pattern uh, plotted by Liberty and others, and we're allowing for a combination of left lateral strike slip and normal slip in this case, so variable rake. And we're also allowing for a combination of possible right lateral strike slip, either co-seismically or, co or in the form of after slip along a couple of additional planes that I've labeled fault two and fault three. That's uh, to recognize there are lineations in the aftershock pattern that seem to line up with the trans chalice fault system. So it's suggestive that maybe something uh, was activated along the ancient fault system. But uh, out of curiosity, uh, we would like to have an idea whether co-seismic slip or after slip was accommodated. So the slip inversion is similar to the procedure for the magna earthquake. Um, the only difference is we're allowing for variable rake in this case rather than fixing the rake. These are the results that we're getting for the net slip. So this is a steeply dipping plane uh, that we see on the left. Uh, this is the co-seismic slip and the rupture begins with uh, predominantly left lateral slip, but it transitions to predominantly normal slip in the south, which is consistent with uh, overlapping the, the northern portion of the sawtooth fault, which is geologically recognized as a normal fault. We allow for co-seismic slip on the these other two fault planes, and I'm just showing the co-seismic slip inf inferred on this. fault number two plane as an example, and there's very little of it. However, if we allow for after slip on those two planes, we find that uh, the F2 plane does accommodate a significant amount of after slip, uh, around 20 uh, centimeters, but it is at depth. Uh, I should mention these uh, planes that I've defined go from the surface to 20 kilometers depth. So uh, looking, for example, at the F2 plane, this after slip would be 10 kilometers or, or deeper. 
when we look at the co-seismic rupture, how, how this uh, the slip uh, progressed with time, we see that it did indeed start with predominantly left lateral slip in the north, but it, it migrated quickly and really gained steam uh, between six and eight seconds and transitioned to normal slip. And this is just another view of the net co-seismic slip distribution. So we have a kind of a rotation in rake during uh, this event, which is, is a little bit unusual. It, it isn't observed that often. And this is how well we're fitting the seismic data. And I always think it's it's not perfect and how could we do better, but it's doing a decent job at this event. And similarly, we're explaining the GPS data as, as well, well as we can. Um, the fits are not sensitive to the details of the faulting. Obviously, they're only seeing the big picture and we're fitting them reasonably well. There is an alternate model for this earthquake, and I'll just jump to the next figure. It involves uh, co-seismic slip not only on this red plane, which is very similar to the plane that I defined for my co-seismic slip model, but they invoke another plane off to the west, which dips in the opposite direction. So we have a, a west-dipping plane to the north, shown by these red segments and an east dipping plane uh, off to the south and uh, the west, which uh, overlaps the west dipping fault at shallow depth. However, the, the slip distribution uh, involving both faults in, involves up to a 10 kilometer jump from fault one to fault two. So that has to be taken into consideration if we uh, are trying to decide if this model is plausible or not. But this model does have some attractive features. It does account better for some of the aftershock seismicity that's located off to the south, and it does fit the interferograms better than the model that I presented earlier. So to conclude, for the Stanley earthquake, the event was a unilateral rupture with a bleak slip beginning with left lateral strike slip in the north and transitioning to normal slip in the south. The rupture may have jumped up to 10 kilometers from a primary fault dip into the west and a second fault dip into the east and parallel to the sawtooth fault. And after slip might have occurred along the east-northeast trending chalice fault system. So I'll move on to the Monte Cristo Range, Nevada earthquake. This is the only surface rupturing event out of the four. And Steve Wesnowski has a, another nice background figure for this event. And he notes that it occurred north of the 1872 Owens Valley earthquake, uh, as well as south of several notable earthquakes in the central Nevada seismic zone. And it occurred in a right step uh, within the northern Walker Lane. And this step uh, is referred to as the Mina de deflection, which accommodates regional transtension. It, the event basically ruptured three aligned east trending faults that overlap the Candelaria Fault and continue to its east. Okay. Oh, 
Kohler, Rich Kohler and others, and Steve Wesnowski uh, before him note that the transfer of right lateral slip in the mean of deflection is accommodated by clockwise rotation across the blocks bound by yeast striking left lateral faults. So uh, Wesnowski proposed this in 2005, and Kohler and others make uh, several strong geologic arguments for why this is correct. So the causative faults and the, the east-west trending faults uh, that ruptured in the Monte Cristo range earthquake would correspond to these small left lateral ruptures in these rotating blocks in the, this figure. This is the GPS data available for this earthquake. It's consistent with predominantly left lateral slip on an east-westing east-west trending faults. There are two interferograms that we're using in this study. I would note that the, the strong blue region that you see in the ascending interferogram is the product of subsidence as well as uh, eastward motion due to the left lateral slip. And in the ascending image, the, this, the same blue region is due to a, a very strong down drop whereas the red region is due to the effect of eastward motion or the left lateral slip component. So this down drop basically implies that there's a minor amount of normal faulting in, in addition to the left lateral slip, uh, which dominates the earthquake. So some of the questions are, what are the causative rupture planes? How does the observed surface slip relate to the slip at depth? And how does after slip relate to the co-seismic slip at depth? So to construct the kinematic slip model, uh, Chengli Lu and uh, colleagues uh, decided on three fault planes with upper and lower edges strikes and, and dip constrained by aftershock seismicity and INSAR. So the, the aftershock seismicity is pretty broad and you could probably draw lines almost anywhere you want when I look at it like this, but um, it is a constraint, so the the two uh, vertical strike-slip faults would be shown by these uh, green arrows that I'm indicating in the upper left figure. With my cursor, the, the normal fault would be located between these uh, two lines on the left, which indicate its uh, upper and lower edges. So it's a, it's a complex earthquake, predominantly left lateral, strike slip, but there's also a normal component on the western side of the fault, and there's also a change in strike to accommodate the aftershock pattern. So this is the slip distribution that we obtain when we consider the, the joint seismic waveforms, GPS and INSAR data, the slip is concentrated mostly below three kilometers depth, but some of the slip does uh, reach close to the surface uh, directly above the high slip region, and I'll uh, say more about that in a moment. Uh, most of the, the slip happened between five to 10 seconds into the rupture. The, the rupture migrated from uh, east to west predominantly as a unilateral rupture, although there is some co-seismic slip off to the east as well. 
So here I'm trying to connect the slip at depth with uh, what was observed at the surface. So uh, the detailed study by Kohler and others measured fractures that, that occurred at the surface uh, associated with the co-seismic slip. So there is no uh, left lateral uh, east trending fault that accommodates a lot of slip. Rather, there are fractures uh, accommodating uh, left lateral slip trending roughly northeastward uh, in the western part of the rupture, and there are other fractures trending north-south accommodating right lateral slip off in the eastern part of the rupture. And I've indicated by eye where the, the surface map, mapping uh, from the field geology overlaps the, the slip at depth. So where these fractures were seen at Earth's surface coincides well, with the area of the greatest amount of slip that we see at depth, and arguably even the, the highest density of fractures, if you will, is located above the area where we have the largest co-seismic slip at depth. And I think this is seen in a lot of earthquakes. We saw a similar thing in the Ridgecrest earthquake. The maximum surface slip was right above the area uh, of inferred uh, highest slip at depth. There have been a few studies of the afterslip from this event, and this is one of them. Uh, they solved for both the co-seismic slip and the afterslip, and they found, as did we, that the co-seismic slip is concentrated between 3 and 12 kilometers depth, and the afterslip, which is given by the colored pattern in these plots, locates primarily shallower than the co-seismic slip, and that's true both in uh, the the kind of the eastern domain and the western domain, but they they are finding quite a bit of afterslip near the surface. So I would put the question to the field geologists if they've seen um, that amount of afterslip. Uh, if there are any indicators that there's that that amount of afterslip at the surface. So to conclude, the the Monte Cristo Range earthquake was a by bilateral rupture, pr primarily rupturing to the west, but with pre predominantly uh, left lateral strike slip with a minor normal faulting component. The, the slip is distributed between 3 and 15 kilometers depth, and the largest uh, shallow slip uh, near the transition between the left lateral strike slip to the east and the normal slip to the west is coincident with most of the observed surface slip. And the earthquake occurred when the within a zone of rotating blocks bounded by the east-west strike slip faults and the mean of deflection. So I'll move on to the 2021 Antelope Valley, California earthquake. This is a picture of the Antelope Mountains. So this earthquake was a normal faulting event in the central Walker Lane, which accommodates 20 to 25 percent of the dextral shear between the Pacific and North American plates. And the epicenter locates below the Antelope Valley Fault Zone, which has an estimated length of 23 to 30 kilometers. So that that fault zone presents its own substantial seismic hazard, although that particular fault did not rupture in this event. 
And this earthquake was not that far from the Monte Cristo range earthquake. Uh, this is showing the, the seismicity uh, of the area, the, the aftershock seismicity up to five days after the events. And this happens to be uh, the figure on the right showing the co-seismic SIP model that we came up with. Uh, the, the rupture propagated unilaterally, a long strike and up dip. And in our interpretation, the fault plane is located somewhat below the locus of seismicity. And that's uh, kind of a bone of contention whether that generally happens or whether the fault plane should be drawn right through the, the middle of, of the cloud of, of aftershocks. But I'll return to that question. So some of the questions are, does one plane surface to capture the co-seismic slip? Is the co-seismic slip distribution uniquely constrained by the seismic waveform and geodetic data? Do the earthquake nucleate rapidly or slowly? So again, uh, we're using a data set of seismic waveforms and static offsets from GPS and INSAR. And uh, for this event, using data out to 100 kilometers and uh, pushing it to about six second corner period. So these are the contributing seismic waveforms. Uh, there's a large concentration of contributing stations to the north, uh, but there's also a cluster of stations near Long Valley, which uh, do contribute valuable data. This is an example of a GPS offset at a, uh, a continuous site, LANT, which uh, by serendipity lies right above the rupture. So it has very large horizontal and uh, north uh, vertical steps that you can clearly see in the daily time series. There are a number of interferograms available for this event and they, they in indicate uh, roughly uh, 60 millimeters of subsidence associated with the event. Uh, this or uh, the, these two scenes are, are clearly noisier, but they still show uh, the same pattern of subsidence. And these uh, descending paths uh, similarly show, in this case, a similar amounts of uh, line of sight change. So in the slip inversion, uh, we're using a seismic structure provided by Mangino and others, 1993. Uh, I'll uh, show you uh, uh, some evidence for uh, a relocated hypocenter being located uh, quite a, some distance away from the preferred NEIC hypocenter, and we're applying the same met methodology as before. So similar to the Magna earthquake, uh, I'm using, uh, I'm, I'm specifying a constant fault geometry, including fixing the rig. So for, for this event, in trial models, I found that uh, the model that I explored preferred nucleation in the north, and that was at odds with the NEIC uh, preferred hypocenter, uh, which is located further south of it. However, if one examines the peak travel times, uh, they are more consistent with a, a hypocenter to the north. Uh, 
uh, than otherwise. So I decided to keep it where the model seemed to prefer it. So the fault geometry, as I mentioned before, there's a 50 degree dipping fault plane, which plots slightly below the, the locus of seismicity. And the main reason for that is the model tends to overpredict the amplitude of the subsidence measured by INSAR. And if I specify a shallower plane, that misfit grows even larger. So there's a trade-off there. And this is the model that we come up with. And there, there is some noise to these models. This is only a 6.0. Uh, uh, there are no uh, uh, extremely nearby seismic stations. But basically, if we look at the plot of the ruptured time uh, as a function of time, this indicates a south southward progressing rupture. However, uh, significant slip really didn't happen until about three seconds after the rupture time in this model. So that indicates a slow nucleation process uh, for this event. And that's implied by the figure on the right as well. But overall, the, the, the rupture propagated a long strike and up dip, but did not come anywhere near the surface. In fact, uh, we're cutting off our slip distribution uh, candidate slip distributions at four and a half kilometer depth. So this model fits the seismic waveform data pretty well. There are some exceptions where we have side effects that, that are clearly going on. I'm showing all of the uh, seismic waveforms, uh, including the Long Valley stations. Uh, So this is the fit to the GPS static offsets on the left, and it's fitting fairly well, including the very large offset that uh, we looked at at LANT. The fit to the uh, line of sight displacements from INSAR is pretty good, but three out of the four interferograms summar summarized here, uh, they're kind of overpredicted by the model, and I never found a, a really satisfactory way out of that. There's probably a little something extra going on that I did not quite get a handle on. However, there is an independent model for this earthquake, which I'll get to maybe in the next slide. Yes, now this is it. So Kang Wang and Doug Drager have an independent model. Uh, and their candidate plane is similar to mine, but it, lo it locates through the middle of the aftershock seismicity, and they do manage to fit the interferograms um, with this model. I'm not quite sure how they did it, but it's always good to have alternate models. And I'm I'm eager for this uh, study to be published so that I can learn all the details. What what did they do that I couldn't do? <laughs> but uh, it is it is an alternate model. Um, qualitatively, they're getting a similar slip distribution um, to mine. Basically, uh, the rupture propagated a long strike and up dip. However, it, the rupture begins at the NEIC hypocenter, whereas mine begins further north. Uh, the substantial co-seismic slip, uh, you might say, starts maybe a couple of kilometers to the northeast of theirs. There are big trade-offs in this kind of work with the assumed 
seismic velocity structure, and that by itself can explain these kinds of, of differences, as well as the, the hypocenter location that's chosen, as well as the fact that I'm using velocity waveforms in this kind of modeling, whereas most other practitioners, including uh, Wang and Drager, use displacement waveforms. Nevertheless, the, the seismic moments are, are pretty similar, and the overall rupture pattern is similar. They're just kind of displaced a little bit with respect to one another. Uh, they, they both agree the, the slip is, is pretty deeply buried. So to conclude for the Antelope Valley earthquake, it was a unilateral rupture with predominantly normal slip on a east dipping fault propagating to the south and up dip, and the slip is concentrated between 7 and 10 kilometers depth. The aftershocks, which I, I showed uh, many, many slides ago, uh, they extend up dip to about one kilometer depth, which is much shallower than the co-seismic slip. So possibly there is shallow after slip, but nobody uh, that I know of has investigated that. And I'm finding there's about a three second delay between the origin time and the onset of significant main shock slip, which would suggest an emergent event with an initially slow nucleation process. So to summarize for the, the four intermountain west earthquakes, three out of the four occurred on previously unknown faults. Uh, only arguably the Magna earthquake occurred on the down dip extension of the Wasatch fault. All four occurred in areas of relatively high background seismicity and geodetic strain rate. And these events sample different tectonic environments with distinct fault geometries leading to unique rupture characteristics of each event. Thanks for your attention. Any questions in the room before we go to the chat? Yeah, so earlier you mentioned uh, liquefaction. I guess maybe it was from Magna. I don't remember exactly. Uh, I think it was Stanley. Oh, Stanley, okay. Do you see evidence of that in the interferograms? And does that potentially affect your after-slip estimates? Or? Yeah, Chuck Wicks looked at the interferograms for the Magna earthquake. Um, returning to the Magna earthquake, and uh, there are liquefaction effects and, I guess, lateral sliding in the Kennecott tailing mines ponds off to the west of Magna, and that was masked out in the interferograms okay. that we use. But yeah, otherwise, I wasn't really cognizant of liquefaction features in the other interferograms that we analyzed. So Fred, that was a great talk. And uh, I have a question. So a number of your your solutions showed shallow afterslip. And do you think that's a consequence? Are these range bounding faults? Are there grobbins containing soft sediments, for example? In other words, I was looking, uh, is there something analogous to what we saw in Napa earthquake, where you get the afterslip and the clay-rich soft sediments and the co-seismic predominantly hard, harder velocity, you know, weakening materials? Do you see anything like that happening here, or have you thought about that problem? Um, you know, phenomenologically, this seems to happen over and over. The co-seismic slip is fairly deep, and then the after-slip is, is shallower. So I think I touched on that for the Magna earthquake. There's, the after-slip was shallower, although no, nowhere near Earth's surface. 
And for the Monte Cristo Range earthquake, the actor slip seemed to fill in, fill in the uh, slip deficit at shallower depth and depth. So, so what I was wondering is, is there, is there independent evidence that there might be sediments up against one side of the fault, for example, in the hanging wall for a normal event? From you know, people have a pretty good idea of the structure of some of these basins. I'm thinking, is there any independent evidence for sediments extending to two, three kilometers? That would be pretty deep, but not unheard of. Uh, certainly, yeah. Uh, for the Magna earthquake case, if we yeah, we suppose after slip could have extended as far up dip as the West Valley fault zone, but uh, that would that would be still depths of say five kilometers, which is below the uh, sediment depth, even in the beast the deepest yeah, basins over there. So yeah, yeah that doesn't like two quite to three kilometers might be the limit. Yeah, it doesn't quite apply. Okay, there. so something else is going on. Something to keep in mind. Okay, it's just. There's race strengthening material there. Well, that's what it is. <laughs> it doesn't have to be sediment, so that's Yeah, that was, that was fun, Fred. Um, for the Magna event, I think that's the first one you talked about, right? So you showed a bunch of um, seismograms that you couldn't fit with high amplitudes. And so I'm curious if that those seems like side effects from you know, low velocity sediments or something. Is that your interpretation? Is there yeah, yeah, it is. is that a they, limitation of the velocity model that you have in this area? Or and and then what like what percent of the stations were that was that that you weren't able to fit? And would that change anything if you could use those? Yeah, those are good questions. Those stations are very much correlated with uh, the presence of I, I, I was calling it VS five hundred, like five five hundred meter deep. Uh, VS. Um, and a previous study by Morgan Machetti also identified that waveforms are more complicated above the, the same basins. He was also working with the, the Wasatch community velocity model. Uh, whether or not to use those sites, I'm limited by assuming a one-dimensional seismic velocity structure. And I, I will allow for path-dependent uh, velocity changes independent of depth. So for a very crude correction for path dependent velocities, uh, station by station, but that would not handle uh, these kind of side effects. It would be nice to include more of the stations. I think about 40% of them uh, get thrown out because, because of side effects. Is there any questions uh, online? I can't see if people are raising their hand. Yeah, we have a few questions in the chat. Um, Jessica Murray asks, you mentioned how these events mostly ruptured unknown faults, but were in areas of high background seismicity and strain rate. Could you comment on how this sort of deformation is accounted for in the recent NSHM update? Uh, oh, so what does this mean for uh, in the context of the recent NSHM? update uh well uh, we've assembled or, um yeah the tectonic geology group uh which has been led by alex haddam for the western us uh, assembled 1017 faults for for that update uh so this would be an argument that any compilation like this is incomplete uh, we keep seeing event after event that uh, occurs on a previously unknown fault but that that effort is is very much worthwhile because the events occur, occur
or close to faults that we know about. And so hazards are, are defined in the general vicinity of faults, not just exactly on, on one fault. So all of these events already occurred in areas where the, the hazard is considered to be high based on pre previous seism historical seismicity uh, and current uh, uh, seismicity measured uh, with, with the modern instrumental network, uh, as well as the geodetic strain. Also, we have another question from Bell Philobosian. Perhaps you said this and I missed it. Does the Animal Valley Fault Plain not seem to be contiguous with the previously mapped Slinker Valley Fault, which was at least initially thought to be the likely source of that event? I didn't mention the Slinker Valley Fault. Uh, if that has been associated with the Antelope Valley earthquake and the the proposed faults that either I or Tang Wang are employing would come out roughly at the surface trace of the Slinker Valley Fault, but it's actually hard to find information about the Slinker Valley Fault, and it's not one of the faults in this round of the NSHM, as far as I'm aware. Thanks. Do we have any um, hands? I don't see any more questions in the chat. Um, I also don't see any. Oh, Sue Huff, just raise her hand. Sue, you want to unmute yourself? Yeah, it's a bit like, thanks for the talk, Fred. I'm just wondering, is, is this a normal rate of activity for the region, all these sixes? The NSHM work of the, the deformation group uh, that I led, as well as the overall effort that Ned is leading, the, the moment accumulation rate in the Western US from on fault sources is two to 10, between two and two and a half times 10 to the 19 Newton meters per year. Off fault deformation would kind of raise that to three times 10 to the 19. Uh, Newton meters per year, which I think boils down to roughly a magnitude 6.5 equivalent every every year. So we had yeah roughly four of them in two years. So it's a, bit, a little bit above normal, but but we have slowed down. <laughs> okay, I realized it was outside the scope of your talk. It's just uh, just wondering. Thank you. Any more questions from the audience? Um, if not, I think we're at 11.31. So um, maybe we can stop recording and um, we can leave the video on in case there are people online who want to stay in chat. But Fred is actually in the Yosemite room. So if you're in Moffitt, I'd encourage you, if you were interested in chatting later about the talk, to just go down. Uh, and then